This is Billy Merck from Green is the Color. You're probably expecting to hear the melodious sounds of Eric Beck and his band playing the Green is the Color song that they created for the Portland Timbers in the 1970s. That's coming up soon. But before we start this episode, I wanted to give you three notes. First, this episode talks about chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Where this episode is posted on the Green is the Color webpage, you will find resources to the Concussion Legacy Foundation helpline, a link to the Concussion Legacy Foundation Research Registry, and a link to the Head Impact and Trauma Surveillance Study, which you could participate in right now. I also want to mention that there are times when the episode, uh, when the audio in the episode is not ideal. Bear with it. Our guest is worth it. And finally, there are moments when this episode gets emotional. This project was created to celebrate the way soccer here brings us all together, how it has been doing that since 1975, and how it will continue to do so well after we've all moved on. I appreciate this opportunity to celebrate the people who made it, and these are times where reflection and thanks remind us this sport reflects us in our humanity. For Jimmy, thank you. Now, on to our episode. There are a few themes previous guests on this podcast have discussed about how soccer was built here, and among those is that everyone was on board to build the game. It was a family enterprise, not just involving those who played for the Timbers, but those who were equally invested off the field. Another related theme is the massive footprint of Jimmy Conway, specifically in building the game across the state by helping coaches learn how to coach. Today's guest is the one person who can speak to all of that and more, Nolene Conway. Nolene, I'm very happy to have you here. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Billy, and uh, thank you for having me on this podcast. Yeah, you've got the best voice of anyone I've had on here, so I just hope the audio is good. <laughs> It'd be so much better for everybody. So this is this next part's kind of a long part where I talk, and then thankfully I could hand it over. But I'm going to give a, a longer bio, if that's okay with you. Sure, absolutely. Perfect. So this is where I usually present the more protracted biography of the guest joining us, but I'm not exactly going to do that today. I'm going to instead introduce both Nolene and her husband, the late Jimmy Conway. Jimmy was born in 1946 in Dublin and in 1964 signed with the professional Irish side Bohemian Football Club. Two years later, Jimmy signed a contract that would have him play a decade for English side Fulham, a span that included representing the Cottagers in the 1975 FA Cup final. A short multi-year stint at Manchester City preceded Jimmy's move, sorry, 19, preceded Jimmy's 1978 move to NASL's Portland Timbers, where he played just over two years. In that time, Jimmy had a loan to Ireland's Athlone Town, I hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, and played some matches indoors with the Timbers. In his career, Jimmy represented Ireland internationally at the senior level, scoring three goals over 20 matches. Jimmy was an assistant coach for the NASL Timbers from 1992. After that, he started the soccer program at Pacific University in Oregon 
1988 became the first head coach for the men's program at Oregon State University, where he remained until 1996. From 2000 to 2009, Jimmy was again an assistant coach for the pre-MLS iterations of the Timbers. But perhaps his most endearing legacy is the work he did with Oregon Youth Soccer Association and building the game at the grassroots level for players and coaches across the state and region. Jimmy is one of just six in the Portland Timbers Ring of Honor. We'll talk a lot about this journey in this episode of the podcast, a journey he did not take alone, which is why we have Jimmy's wife, Nolene, here today. Soccer was definitely a family affair for the Conways. One of their sons, Paul, had a professional career bookended in 1989 and 2005 with the Portland Timbers. In addition, Nolene contributed significantly to building the game for girls in the state. As a coach, Nolene was an Oregon Girls High School Big School Coach of the Year and at one point led Sunset High School to four consecutive state championship matches, winning back-to-back titles in 1989 and 1990. This is where you need to hear much less of me and much more from my guest, Nolene Conway. All right. I hope uh, I hope that did justice. Well, thank you. There's, uh, yeah, I, I, the only thing, two things that I can think of there too, Billy, would be um, I believe, and you can definitely check this, but Bohemians was an amateur team. Jimmy was not a pro there, to the best of my knowledge. I think it was the only amateur team in the Irish League um, at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, for the life of me, I've been told this before, but I don't remember him going on loan to Athlone Town. I really don't. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. And I've, I've been, you know, I've read it somewhere before, and um, I've kind of, you know, gosh, you know, was I just too busy raising kids and coaching and doing whatever to figure <laughs> that out? <laughs> anyway, it's worth looking at, I guess. So, um, yeah, I think maybe I should do some research because I, I think you'd notice if you went to Ireland for a while where you were. Yeah, yeah, right? I, yeah. Well, in, in, you know, in the early days, we we were only here six months of the year, and then we went back to the UK for six months. But I don't remember him going back to Ireland then to play there. I really don't. So, you know, maybe this old brain is getting way too old because uh, <laughs> I remember all that stuff. But uh, right. <laughs> Well, there's plenty of other stuff we can definitely count on, and that's, I think, uh, just the legacy that – I say Jimmy, but when I'm saying Jimmy, I hope it's clear that I'm talking about your brain because well, it's such a everybody participating. Yes, we did, I guess, in, in our own way. Um Never, you know, I never really thought about it at the time, but, you know, obviously with Jimmy's passing and people talk to you more about, you know, his legacy and, and what we did as a family. Um, yeah, I, I, I suppose that we, we did have some influence, but certainly it pales in um, comparison to what Jimmy did, you know, um, for the years he uh, was here in the States, um, just and loving every minute of it, of course. Yeah, I, I I hope I get his energy because it's something that's come up with people who played with him before and, and played for him. But there's a great article from 2014 in the Oregonian where Jason Quick wrote about um, Jimmy and and yourself and Mick and Linda Hoban. And mm-hmm. one of the many things that stands out for me in that article is is the journey you and Jimmy took in the early years of his soccer career. Can you tell us how you met and what life was like making a career of playing soccer in the 60s and 70s in England and Ireland? Uh, sure. Uh, we met actually in Ireland. I was on vacation there. I was born in Dublin, but raised in England for the most part. But I had a great friend over in Dublin who I used to go and spend the 
um, summers with or any vacation time I got. And um, my first soccer game was, um, or football, if you will, um, was at Bohemians. And um, I think they were playing Shamrock Rovers. Uh, Bohemians won 2-0. Jimmy scored both goals. Um, My girlfriend, who was dating one of the other um, both players, um, was jumping up and down and couldn't understand why I wasn't equally as excited about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, oh, I, yeah, great, you know. <laughs> so um, I kind of met Jimmy on a blind date that night at, um, it was called the Crystal Ballroom in Dublin. And um, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. Right. <laughs> so that's basically how we met. Um, and uh, my, my, my dad obviously was, um, funnily enough, was a, huge Fulham fan all his life and to actually have his youngest daughter ending up dating um, you know a Fulham player was wasn't quite something um, so yeah so that's how we met and as far as um, football in England in the 60s etc you know it was you know Jimmy always it was always just a game to him and for me it was his job um, it, you know, people, I think, look at professional athletes and they see perhaps some of the fringe benefits of it, especially now, you know, obviously with, you know, the salaries that are paid these days and the cars they drive and, and this, that and the other. And I didn't even know at the time that I was what they now call wags. I didn't, you know, we didn't <laughs> talk about that. Um, certainly, we didn't have, um, you know, I, I would say... Uh, our, our importance was not inflated as they are now. I, I saw where like some players' wives in England were going at each other in court about things that were said on social media about each other, and they genuinely think that they're celebrities. And I think that's so funny because um, that was certainly not the case back in the day. Uh, um, Jimmy was really all about the job. He really was. He, um, you know, he didn't take advantage of all the opportunities, perhaps, that were available to him in the London nightlife and the, the that sort of thing. Um, you know, he probably had opportunities, but that, that really wasn't who he was. He was a very um, quiet person. Um, he loved a good laugh. A good joke was his forte. And they asked me one time at Fulham when we went back there, what did I miss the most? And I said, the jokes. He came home with a cracker every single day. Um, and, you know, so he, he loved to, we loved to go out to dinner with a couple of friends, but he wasn't like, you know, the guy that was um, in the 60s, as I said, in London, um, with all that was going on there. That wasn't, that wasn't his scene. Um, so, you know, I was going to the games. I went to obviously all the home games. Uh, it was always frowned on. And we never, I think I only went to one away game um, for Fulham. And it was sort of frowned on if, um, you know, wives or girlfriends went to those events. Um, and I think we went, it was the uh, semi-final or the quarter-final against Everton in the run-up to the um, 75 Cup final. And the club organized that, so we were all invited. But, uh, yeah, so it was going to Craven Cottage, you know, every Saturday or whatever day they were playing at home and um, watching the games. And uh, um, I did actually end up writing um, 
I suppose ghostwriting it because Jimmy's name is on the article, but um, for the um, the Irish Post newspaper uh, wrote about um, all the Irish players playing at a professional level in England, and we do an article every week. So that was kind of my introduction into having to look at the game a little bit more seriously, I suppose, and um, obviously, you know, with, you know, Jimmy's top, you know, expertise, um, just, yeah, writing about those players. So that was really our life, raising our children. Um, you know, we were married very young, and um, Paul came along right away. Yeah. <laughs> and 18 months later came Laura. Uh, yeah, so they were the two born in England, and then um, our little American, um, Mark, was born um, 10 years later after Laura. So. And so I'm curious how your, um, a little bit going backwards, but not too far, your, your um, match day sort of routine, was it was it different coming from Fulham, where you, Craven Cottage, it sounds like most of the matches you attended, was it different atmosphere being a, a wife of a Timbers player when you came here and going to Civic Stadium or that game day experience? Of course, you had been at that time, so it's probably different in that respect, too. Yeah, it, it was different, of course, yes. Um, you know, Civic Stadium, back in the day, if you're familiar with it, was mm-hmm. um, not as posh as it is today. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But I have to say that the one thing that I tell everybody about coming here is how welcome we were by um, the owners of the, um, the Timbers. They took players under their wings and boy, did they look after us. You know, we're 6,000 miles away and we've left our families and our kind of support system, if you will. Um, and I think they knew that and they wanted to make us feel as welcome as possible. And um, remember going to, I think probably the first game I went to at the stadium at half time, we'd go downstairs under the stadium and it was very, very dark down there. It was, you know, the park and the few little rooms. And they took us into one of the rooms and they had painted, um, I think the, the walls were painted white and they had lots of um, yellow flowers all over the place. And the owners were all there pouring us a glass of wine if we wanted it or cold drink, whatever. Um, and I, you know, from coming from the professional scene in um, England, where, you know, you'd be lucky if any of the directors of the club knew your name as a wife of the player um, or anything about your family to that. To that but, um, so they were all there and they were chatting with us and that really stuck with me and it, and it meant a lot. And so I'm curious about um, starting a family. You mentioned earlier, you know, two of your kids were, were there, but you've also mentioned how Jimmy was very into he was very career focused and, you know, in my experience, he very focused on what he's doing, but I've talked to quite a few former players who worked on making a career in the UK in the seventies and even some who moved here and started a family. But I'm wondering what it's like starting and raising a family in that environment and then coming over here with a young family and just what the decision was like at that time, because that's like you just said, it's a big change and you were fortunate to be, you know, around a good situation here, but how do you make that choice uh, as a uh, you know a professional football family in the 70s? 
Um, I think it all came down to the fact that Jimmy wanted to continue playing. When he was at Manchester City, um, they had offered him um, a position um, to take over the youth program. Uh-huh. And uh, he, um, he was only in his 30s, and he felt that he had a few more years left in him to play. He had been robbed of some, you know, some years, I guess, in totality of not playing to injuries that he had. Um, you know, a, a meniscus injury would require, you know, a blade going in, <laughs> more major surgery than it is today with the orthoscopic treatment you can get, and the recovery much, much longer. So he had his, his share of, uh, of that, and, but he was incredibly fit. Um, fitness was very, very important to him and remained, you know, that for most of his life. Um, but um, he just decided that, um, you know, when, when the off came in for him to go to Portland, he came home and he said to me, uh, would you like to go to Portland, Oregon? And I said, well, where is that? <laughs> So obviously my uh, geography education wasn't the best. So we got a map out and we had a look and we said, well, look, it's just above California, the next day's up. It'd be lovely there. We'll have sunshine all year and we can get out of this rain and the cold in England. <laughs> um, let's go. And our children were so young. I think you can make those decisions easier when children are like six, seven years old than you can when you know, they're, you know, maybe middle school or high school age. And I think it's an easier decision to make. So, um, yeah, that was basically it. We decided, hey, why not? And he knew he could play. So, yeah, that was the decision, really. There wasn't a huge conversation about it. We just got excited about it. That was a great venture. Let's do it. I just picked something up in there that you said, they asked him to take over the, the youth academy. Yes. It was was coaching always something that then was just something he did? Um, no, not necessarily. He didn't particularly, you know, he didn't coach really um, during his professional career in, in, in England. He did go to a lot of schools and he went to a lot of clubs and that. But, you know, the coaching was of a different caliber over there. You had coaches that could run young, you know, academy programs, like the club programs over there. Um, but at the um, professional level, um, you know, taking over the Man City youth program um, would have been a huge deal for him. But again, as I said, he was in his 30s and, and, and he felt very fit and decided he wanted to play some more. So that was really the, the driving um, force behind his decision or our decision, I suppose. Yeah. So I'm curious, speaking only to playing soccer, because I feel like a lot of my questions are going to end up talking about coaching and building the game, which can't be understated. But just playing the game, what do you think is his proudest accomplishment on the field? Oh, gosh. Um, oh, gosh, it would have to be a toss-up, I would think, between playing for his country, which has to be, you know, for anybody, you know, standing on the field in your national jersey, um, hearing your national anthem being played has to be incredibly proud and emotional moment. But obviously, um, the cup final um, in 75, playing at Wembley, the old Wembley Stadium. And, um, yeah, in front of like 100,000 people. Um, yeah, that, he was incredibly proud of that. And, you know, it still stands today. Um, that's the only time Fulham has ever gotten to the final. So it is a special 
time for a special uh, memory for the club as well, I guess. So, um, yeah, I think think perhaps that with those two together. Um, yeah, those are pretty big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so when I talked to Brian Gant, he said the year Jimmy came over was a positive transition year for the Timbers. It was coming off a rough transition year in 1977 um, for the whole club. But among the players who came in that year were John Bain and Jimmy. Yes. And uh, Brian said that that improved the club, not just because of their skill, but also the type of people and teammates they were. And so John was young, still a teenager. Jimmy Mm -hmm. was, you know, 30 years old and had a very accomplished career at that point. What Brian said those two guys really showed him was, and this is Brian's a Canadian international himself, yeah. I showed him some things about being a professional. Yeah. I'm curious, uh, how, what was your first, speaking soccer-wise, what was the first season like coming to something like the North American Soccer League um, in Portland? Um, well, I think, you know, watching the game, obviously you're always, you know, it's a very, um, it's very fraught, I think, as a wife of a player watching your husband play in the game, um, you know, you're on Civic Stadium um, and it's like you're playing on concrete. <laughs> yeah. so the game was different to watch. Um, when the ball bounced, it went into orbit, so you had to make sure that didn't happen. <laughs> um, it, in terms of the toll it took on your body, um, that, was, that was huge, you know, um, and especially if you're getting older too, um, it probably took more more of a toll um, on his joints and what have you than if he'd continued to play on grass, uh, natural grass. So I think, you know, looking at the game, um, you know, I, as, I, as I said, I think when you're the wife of a player, your focus is more on them and making sure they're not getting injured or um, and and you don't get a lot of time to sit back and just enjoy the game like you would if you were like I can watch a premier game on TV or watch the Timbers play and I, I'm looking at it differently now you know you're looking at the whole game and what have you but um, yeah I think back then um, and, and I and I definitely saw the issue you know with, with, the, with the hard surface and what have you and certainly <laughs> you know there was always several ice baths and what have you afterwards so yeah that's what I kind of stuck with me. Yeah, I sort of wish they preserved a, a part of that that turf, uh, an area somewhere there, just so people could really understand how terrible it was. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it was bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then there's the, the you know you had the pitching mound. Or no, they did. Did they have a baseball field uh, in the in there then as well? Yeah, right? I believe they did. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They did. So uh, in 1982, Jimmy. Well, the, the Timbers folded in 1982, mm-hmm. but at the time, Jimmy had been coaching with the club. Uh, and like many who built the game here, at, at that point, your family stayed. And it, can you tell me about that time and what was the process to remain in Portland um, after there was no club here? Yeah, it was it was a stressful time for us, really, because our youngest son was born in 81. So now we have a you know a young baby now and a 11, a 10, 11 year old. 12 year old um and you know jimmy was out of a job basically so um 
you know, it's not like there are many clubs that you can go from, you know, one to the other to interview for. So I think the transition of, you know, getting into um, the collegiate soccer programs was was critical for us. Um, for me just to have it, you know, I wasn't working because I was, um, we did have a green card at that point. And um, I have to credit Nike with that when we, you know, I forget what year we got our green card. But they were instrumental in helping us do that because other players who were with the Timbers um, who are in the process of doing that, of getting their green cards, um, resident alien um, status, uh, they, John Pratt, for example, he and his wife Marie and the kids, they had gone through the process. They were in what they call, it was like I think it's a week or two weeks holding period at the very, very end of the process where they do a kind of a national search to make sure you've never been arrested or done anything bad and what have you. And it was during that period that the, the um, Timbers folded and they they pulled their car. They wouldn't let them stay. They made them go back to England, um, which I'm sure worked out fine for John Marie in the end, but they did want to stay at that point. But uh, yeah, it was it was very um, tumultuous, you know, for, for all the families involved and um, a little scary, I guess. Um, you know, I think, you know, when you come from um, England and, you know, you maybe their national health system is not that great, but at least it's there and you're not paying for it. And then you end up in, in uh, Portland and, uh, you know, you don't have, you know, medical coverage for a family of four or five at that point. Um, that was, yeah, it was scary times. Um, but, you know, Jimmy, thank God, uh, he was lucky to get the job at Pacific, and uh, he, you know, he was already, I think, with um, Oregon Youth Soccer at the time, part time. Um, so, yeah, that was that was really what I remember about that era. I'm I'm going to definitely talk about Pacific University in a second, mm-hmm. uh, but before I do, I, I want to ask sort of a, a follow up question, and it's, uh, maybe it's more of a statement, but I, a lot of players I talked to from the NASL days faced a few different things. One was the league was gone, but even earlier, there was no guaranteed contract and for players who were coming over from other countries, especially with families, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that's very little job security, especially if you have a family or get hurt. And I can yeah. imagine there was, you know, part of the job was taking that risk. Yes. Yes, indeed. It was, it was, it was a big gamble, but I think when you're young, you can be a little bit, you know, relatively young, you could be a little bit more reckless. Yeah. But, yeah. but again, I think um, Jimmy always had this space, I suppose, that uh, um, I suppose if I say when he came here and saw like how much work needed to be done on the game, I think he mm-hmm. perhaps thought, well, somehow he'll build a future out of this um, because there is so much work to do. And surely there would be, you know, an opportunity for him to be involved in, in um, you know, the game at some level or other. So, yeah. yeah. So this is it. This is the one a personal question for me, uh, because of what Pacific University and specifically the soccer program at Pacific University mean to me. Mm-hmm. How did that program come about? Jimmy was there from '82 to '88. What was mm-hmm. it like starting a, a soccer program in the mid '80s? And that was a NAI level program as well. Yeah, you know, Jimmy had his. You know, he. He had to learn on the fly, obviously. And you're not, you know, you're jumping into a whole new arena, as I 
recruiting, um, you know, scheduling and all that sort of thing. So, and he didn't, that wasn't his background at all. So um, he was coach, but, you know, you have to have a team to coach. So um, he would go to a lot of, you know, um, games that would be on out at Delta Park, if you will, looking for players. He would, you know, he would make phone calls, um, players that he knew around the country. Um, and it was just a, a building a network, if you will, and from scratch. And, um, you know, that's what he did. It was just, you know, looking for players. And um, he knew, like, you know, I've heard it say that Jimmy wasn't a great strategist, I guess, on the, te- on the on, with, with teams and what have you. But to me, I think his greatest strength was knowing what he had and what he didn't have and making the most out of that. Um, you know, how do you get players to go out to Pacific University? You know, it's a small college, you know, um, and... I think convincing uh, players that you really, really wanted that you could build around um, to come to the school um, was perhaps a little difficult for him at times. And then he got, you know, he had some local talent that he brought in as well. So um, I think for him, it was just, he never, he just always saw that there was a task, there was something to be done and and, and he always figured out the best way to do it. And so, um, and that was the same when, when I, you know, he was building teams. But when he taught me, mentored me, he always said, you know, you know, find your good players and build around them and, and take the strengths of every player, you know, whatever that may be. Um, because, you know, you don't always get those um, star midfielders and the star forwards or the star defenders. You You have to sometimes create them yourself, so... So this is kind of an interesting connection is when I went to Pacific University and played, I played for Jeff Anquist, who Mm -hmm. was a player for Jimmy. And you're saying these things about Jimmy, and I'm seeing the teams I played with, and I'm seeing Jeff at the same time, Mm -hmm. which is pretty interesting of taking – I mean, it's still recruiting people to Forest Grove, Oregon, um, especially without facilities, um, Mm -hmm. which at the time was the case. Not an easy thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and with the other programs in the state of Oregon, um, you know, with the, the University of Portland and uh, many colleges, I can't, I still can't believe, I mean, I can believe he started the program, but it's still amazing to me. And I, I want to sort of, again, follow up by saying how thankful I am that he did, because I'm a first generation college graduate. And the reason I made it through college was because I played soccer, I had soccer to kind of, you know, help me mature a bit and, and stay through it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I go back again, all the back to, you know, coming over from Fulham, um, staying in Portland in '82, starting the program at Pacific University. This is, you know, I'm very thankful for for the uh, your contemporaries who did that. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it's certainly the building blocks, if you will. <laughs> yeah, um, and, okay. yeah, and so it doesn't stop there though. In 1988, he left, me left Pacific to start Oregon State University. Yes. Uh, Okay, so that's a long drive, no matter when. Uh, you didn't you didn't live in Corvallis. No, right? we did not. No, we lived okay. in, we lived in Portland, about five minutes away from where I live now. And uh, Jimmy was then, you know, also working at Oregon Youth Soccer. So um, we did look um, at properties down, maybe in Salem areas, that sort of thing, maybe 
a little bit closer to do both. But and ultimately, we we loved where we we lived, and we didn't really want to. And I, to be perfectly honest with you, Billy, I look back and I think I really, really didn't appreciate back in the day the amount of effort it took for Jimmy to go in and work at Oregon Youth Soccer in the morning, jump in his car, eat a sandwich in the car on the way down, and jump into um, a training session or a recruiting session, whatever he was doing down at Oregon State. Um, he never complained. He, he really, he never did. Um, clearly, he was always tired when he got home, um, but uh, he never complained about it. And uh, yeah, I look back and think, you know, gosh, I should have appreciated that more at the time, but, you know. <laughs> well, you, I can tell you there are a lot of people who do appreciate that. Um, and in fact, that part of the question about making that drive came from uh, one of Jimmy's former players, his first international recruit, Simon Date, who, when I told mm-hmm. him I was going to talk to you, made sure I asked about that drive in the hours. I'm also curious about, was there a difference going to a Division One soccer program and having to build coming from a, an NAI program? Or what kind of resources, just as far as building a Division One soccer program, were available to Jimmy? Not a lot, to be honest. He didn't have that huge, um, you know, fund uh, the scholarship players. Um, he had to use um, the money, you know, very carefully. And, you know, that was, again, one of his strengths. He was very, very good at managing budgets. You know, he didn't believe in frills and all that sort of thing. Um, but he, you know, it, it was competitive because, as I said, you know, when kids are going to school and it's so expensive for families and, you know, obviously um, they don't always take maybe the program that they would like to go to and they maybe take the program that is going to offer them a little bit more. So he has to really convince players um, to stay with him and, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure... Simon has told you how he recruited him um, from Delta Park, playing in the game. He just stopped by because he'd never passed a game without stopping and looking. And um, he went over and, and chatted to Simon. And, of course, the rest is history. Um, yeah. So. And what's great is Simon has Jimmy's old job now. Yeah. At Oregon Soccer. There you go. Full circle, right? Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so speaking of, we've talked a bit about Pacific and Oregon State and what you and your family have given to those programs and building, you know, the, it just emanates from there. You know, other people go out and coach and build the game their own way and it starts, you know, with you guys and with Jimmy. Can you speak to what those programs gave back to you? Programs gave back to or us? Or just, yeah, as a poorly worded question. Can, you know, what did it, I mean, you sort of talked to what it meant to you and even looking back, you, you said a minute ago that it, um, you know, that that it meant um, you didn't appreciate fully what went into it and how much, but, you know, as far as even just the sense of pride or seeing what they've both become, is, do, you look, do you think about those programs at all? I do, but, you know, honestly, Billy, when Jimmy was coaching at um, Oregon State, I was coaching at Sunset. Um, my kids ended up were playing in, you know, either in high school programs um, or a club program. And we had five soccer schedules on the refrigerator. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, um, I, I don't really want to get into my coaching career, but when I was coaching at Sunset, it, I really missed out on a couple of things. Um, 
I miss out on seeing, you know, our daughter play in high school, except when she played against you St. Mary's Academy. Laura did. And so when she St. Mary's played Sunset, clearly I saw her play. But I missed all her games, you know, and that was that was kind of sad. Um, I also, um, both of us, Jimmy and I missed out on seeing um, Paul in his collegiate career over at Hartwick um, because, you know, we didn't get to go to, you know, the special weekends they have and the special games they have. I think um, we did see him. <laughs> Paul came, um, his team from Hartwick came and played at University of Portland. <laughs> Remember that? Obviously, we went to see that game, but uh, the funny part of that story, whole thing was um, the team, the Hartwick team, couldn't get a flight out after um, the game, and they didn't have the funds to book hotels for everybody. So Paul says, "Mom, do you think the team could stay at our house?" <laughs> and they did. And this great big coach came driving down Canyon Drive, <laughs> and we said, uh, "I'd borrowed." sleeping bags from everybody that I knew. Um, and we had all, you know, not just the players, but all the staff as well. Everybody was there. And we did this huge barbecue for them. But um, it, it was a great memory, but um, very funny. Um, but looking back at the program, to, uh, to answer your question, um, I would say that, you know, we were both so busy um, just, you know, trying to coach. And I was raising a family. Um and, you know, we, I suppose we just didn't, be, we weren't able to take the time. Um, you know, Jimmy didn't get to come and see, he didn't see many of my games at sunset. He came to as many as he could. But, yeah, I think um, that was really, really just getting through each season, you know, and, and enjoying it, obviously. But, yeah. um, you know, you look back and you think, gosh, I missed out on a lot too, you know, so... Um, as we both did, but I mean, you know, that's that's what you do. Yeah. So I want to ask a little bit about your coaching. You said you didn't want to get into it, but do you mind if I ask you a few questions? No, 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 no. Good, no, good, because no. I think it's important. So I mentioned <laughs> earlier that you were a successful high school coach. Um, you led Sunset to four excuse me consecutive state championship matches, mm-hmm. one back to back championships during that time. Mm-hmm. Where did your where did your coaching journey start and what took you up to that point in coaching? Well, <laughs> so obviously at Oregon Youth Soccer, Jimmy was a resource for all, you know, for the club program and for the high school program. And I, um, I think Sunset High School's athletic director or somebody contacted him and asked him, said they were in need of a JV coach. And um, um, Jimmy said to me, well, why don't you do it? And I went, I looked at him, and at that point, I'd really just coached the kids in their club programs because apparently if you had an accent back then, you, you coached soccer, whether you'd even seen, you know, knew whether the ball was pumped or stuffed or not, I don't know. But they just thought that you, you, since you came from the UK, that you knew how to coach. So that was my, um, my coaching experience, you know, in a nutshell. Um, but, you know, it's amazing what you learn from watching so much soccer um, at a professional level and talking about it. And, you know, Jimmy and I, as mentioned about doing that article we used to do. So you clearly pick up quite a bit. But, again, um, Jimmy was my, my coach. 
And there was many a night I went to bed with a clipboard and we would talk through different strategies. Um, we would, you know, I, he would come and look at the players and um, help me decide, like, you know, who was going to be the best and, you know, the key positions you needed. And I think back then too, Billy, you know, what you have to understand is that the club program was in its infancy. Um, you had parents, again, who you know, thought this is a great idea for your kids to play soccer, but they had no soccer background at all. And bless their heart, they went out, but they wanted their kids. They knew it was healthy and it was an activity for them. So the coaching, um, even coming through the club levels, wasn't amazing. So high school soccer was, back then, was really about... um, you got the odd, skilled player that was just naturally gifted, like, you know, somebody that could pick up, you know, whatever they were going to do and they'd be good at it. But then you had to look at athletes more than um, skillful players because the skill level wasn't there. And let's face it, the high school um, season is very, very short. You're not going to teach um, – kids are not just automatically going to pick up the skills um, – that you need to really play a good game. Now, you can teach tactics. That's different. That's easier to teach. But the skill level requires, you know, years of training and the right training as well, which is why the game is so much better now because the club programs have improved dramatically and players that have played for years have gone back and have played collegially and what have you, and they've all come back and given back to the club programs. So... You know, it's much different to watch a high school game now than back in the day because players that come in know, you know, they usually have played at a good level, the club, um, some clubs, and had had some, you know, decent coaching. So, yeah. But, and that, uh, had to, oh, sorry, that had to start somewhere, right? And we talk about this first wave of, you know, Timbers iteration and families that, that came in and started that. And now yeah. we have generations coming back and, you know, even as you're saying, building the game noticeably, the product on the field. I'm curious, uh, you know, and I just, you know, I talked to Brian Gann a while ago who had unparalleled success at Catlin Gable. Yeah. There are also people like Bert Halloween, Kit Pierce, mm-hmm. Joe Bala, yeah. Steve mm-hmm. Benna, mm-hmm. and yourself. These were specifically people at that time coaching the girls' game. Yeah. I'm curious, what was it like building, you're, you're building the sport for girls at the time. What, what was that experience like in that context? Um, I don't, you know, again, I never really saw myself as building anything. I was doing something I, I really enjoyed. Um, I loved getting to know all the players. Um, and I never saw myself as, you know, I, I, I didn't see myself as building anything. It was afterwards people come back to you and say, oh, you know, um, I see, I'm friends now on Facebook with some players and, um, they're now parents of high school players um, or younger. And, you know, they talk about their experience um, playing. So I think when kids look back then, um, I think what they gain out of it is not so much what they learned, certainly in high school. Um, I, play, I coached the club level, which was totally different than coaching at high school. I coached them both at the same time. And um, I feel like that's where I 
contributed, I feel, in building the game back then. Because you had players, you know, for, for several years. And teams that you just brought through the ranks and, you know, you moved to clubs here and there. But um, that's where I feel. You know, I think at the high school level, I think kids have those memories in high school that, you know, the friendships they made and they're still friends, you know, and and that really is more about what their experience is um, that they take but not from. Yeah, you know, yeah, we, 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 we did well. We did very, very well, actually, but... Um, I think it was more the relationships and the friendships that were made back then for the players. I think that's what they would say. Um, and, yeah. So um, so just purely from a, from a soccer standpoint, because I know this is really secondary to the personal, like you were just saying, how does it feel to, to win a state championship and, and know what that would mean to those players on their soccer journey? Oh, you know, it was it was – it was lovely, actually. It was uh, it was very exciting, especially one year when um, Paul's team, when he was playing for Jesuit, they won the boys' program, and my son said, "Girls won the girls' program." So that was kind of ultra special. Um, but yeah, it's 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 an amazing feeling to have, you know. When you know, we played a lot of our games, the finals were played down at Civic Stadium, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I mean, I remember that a ball would bounce. I used to tell my goalkeeper, you know, you'll get scored on. If somebody, if a ball bounces, it's going over your head, you know, and you could be <laughs> looking behind you at the ball in the net. Um, so, yeah, it's it's an amazing feeling. It really is. And it's, you know, you look at their faces and, and the joy and, and the camaraderie that's there. And, and I think they're memories that they will have forever and ever. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, I've got a couple more soccer-specific questions that I'd like to ask, and then Mm -hmm. I do want to talk about OYSA, and I think it's important to mention CTE in soccer. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are some serious questions ahead that we haven't touched on, but I definitely want to to ask you some soccer questions as a parent. The first one is this. What's it like raising a professional soccer player? I guess it wasn't a conscious choice to do that, but Paul had a great career, and the bulk of his life, uh, as we worked – the bulk of his life, um, you know, as we talked about his childhood in Portland, he was 12 when the Timbers folded, and yet he found his path through Jesuit high school, and then he talked about college and in the professionals. What's it like raising a son who ends up following the same path as your husband into professional soccer? Um, clearly proud is the first word I think that comes to mind. Um, I'm proud of, you know, the, the amount of work he put into it and his resilience, and it's not always easy being the son of the next pro, if you will. Um, perhaps it was, you know, something that he felt he had to live up to. And um, But um, he was, he was, he had really natural skills as well. He was a very, um, somebody described him as an elegant player. Um, very thoughtful player as well in terms of like reading the game. Um, I've always thought that, and the difference between a good player and a great player is, um, you know, you can have all the skill in the world, but unless you've got the mind of a chess player, um, then, you know, that's the difference between a good and a great player. You've got to really be able to read the game so well. And, yeah, I, I, I think he was able to do that. He, he went on, as you know, to be an attorney, so he obviously had a good brain. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's something that he brought. He was very analytical about the game. And uh, I think he took that approach, along with all the hard work that goes into it as well, of course. Um, but, yeah, he was very passionate about it. And so this is this is the, the second question I wanted to ask. And I, you said you, had, you missed a lot of games, but I hope you're at this one. On August 7th, 2005, the Timbers beat the Seattle Sanders at what was then PGE Park, 1-0. The 77th-minute goal that won the game for the Timbers was scored by Paul Conway, his mm-hmm. last professional goal. Yeah. And the assistant coach of the Timbers at the time is Jimmy. Yeah. Yeah, were you there? <laughs> yep. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 What was that like? Um. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that was... That was emotional, <laughs> I would yeah. say. Yeah, it was. It was um, very special, very, very special. And, uh, yeah, he, um, yeah, to have, you know, a father's son. I don't know how many, like, I know there are several, but I don't know how, exactly how many there are, you know, father's sons that have played professionally at the same team, yeah. um, you know, throughout the American League or in England, for that matter. I know there are some, but I don't know if there's that many. So, um, yeah, that was very special. Yeah, that's great. And so, I'm glad we got to talk about that because there, you know, it's, it's a challenge, and a lot of your family time went into building the game in Oregon. Um, and you know, Jimmy was the coach from 2000 to 2009 for the Timbers, and mm-hmm. it's an interesting period in, in Timber soccer history because there's a lot of change. Mm-hmm. It was the second iteration of the Timbers, and they they went through some some leagues that were, you know, the USL, the A-League, uh, USL mm-hmm. Pro. Um, mm-hmm. But they were also, what a lot of people I think would forget is that they were attached to a AAA baseball team, which means at PGE Park, the Timbers were not the priority. Exactly. Um, and so after what you've been through, can you speak to, to sort of how, on one hand, you know, the Timbers are here, and it's nice from 2000 to 2009, this team's here, and there's the great moment in 2005 we just spoke about. On the other hand, uh, right, the, the their second fiddle uh, when it comes to decision making, AAA baseball is still sort of the priority. Given what you've seen coming through the North American Soccer League and other things, it's still a rather tenuous position being involved in sports, especially in, in Portland and in American professional soccer. What was that time like in that context of, um, you know, the, the Timbers are back, but it's not quite the same, and it's just it was a different time. It was, yeah. Again, um, you know, Jimmy's never one to complain about a whole lot of things. Like he didn't, he didn't necessarily like the ideas they were second fiddle for baseball. Um, but he also knew that, you know, um, soccer was still in its infancy here, really. And that, you know, baseball's a national sport, right? So <laughs> um, there's not a whole lot you can do about things like that. And I think, you know, it's the same approach he took when he first came um, to Oregon with soccer and, and uh, he wanted to expand clubs in Portland and he was told when he called the um, parks department in Portland that there was no fields available. So he got in his car and he drove around Portland and he found fields and he go back to them and say, you know, the field over there, all you have to do is put lines and nets on it and you've got a soccer field over there, you know, and that was the approach he took. So he didn't, he was more a problem solver and making the best out of a bad situation. So, uh, you know, if you, if you can't control um, the narrative, then, you know, 
you just have to deal with what you have and make, make the most of it. And I think that's what I said. That's what he did. So. Yeah. Yeah. so for these last two questions, I'm going to leave it kind of open because I don't want to be too specific and miss something. But I want to first talk about Oregon Youth Soccer Association specifically and about spreading and building the game through helping areas get organized and helping coaches learn to coach. I mean, this is the first generation of soccer coach in this country. Yeah. It's a grassroots infrastructure that Jimmy built through OSA, and it's why the game, you know, was built and for the first time in this country passed on to another generation and now another generation. I mean, I can't imagine everything that goes into that, the hours, the miles, uh, the labor, and we've talked a bit about that, but I'm just curious uh, specifically with OISA what that journey was like and, and how, you know, it's not just, a, you know, Oregon State and you're recruiting for, for one physical place, but Oregon's a pretty big state when you're trying to get out and, you know, build the game and, and plant those seeds. Yeah, that was definitely a challenge, and I think probably the other challenge was, you know, um, getting the staff, to, to help with that, spreading the word, if you will. I mean, he was just one person, and he did go all over the state. He, there wasn't anywhere he wouldn't go, and he didn't care how many coaches were going to show up. Um, he didn't have a minimum or a maximum. You know, he just went, and, uh, you know, he tried to, to um, again, you know, spread the word, find find somebody in the area that maybe had a little bit of a pedigree with with. with soccer or um, at least was good at organizing um, programs and he would talk to you know coaches you know seven days a week there was never an evening so there was never a time when he would say you know I'm off the clock um, we struggled to take vacation time um, because there was always there was just always always so much to do and, and so many places to to visit and so many programs to manage and yeah so it was um it was challenging but again as i said it was just um you know i think when you talk to some people that he is you know had um an impact on um and they tell you that you know oh gosh he got me into soccer and here i am 20 20 years later and i'm still doing it and i wouldn't have done it without him and I you know he answered all my questions and took all my calls and what have you so um yeah I think looking back that's really you know it was it was it was seven days a week and it was there was never any time off so um yeah so this kind of goes into my next question then and this is there's not really a question here but I'm I, just a, a statement really the idea behind this project that I'm doing now, the Green is the Color Project, started in 2000 at the Mac Club. And mm-hmm. I attended Jimmy's Memorial there, and I saw a lot of my own personal uh, soccer journey in the mm-hmm. people who attended. And mm-hmm. we were all just a little bit older, yeah. and, and I, I realized we weren't collecting our stories, you know, mm-hmm. like this, the times and the people who made soccer what it is. But more important, the people who, who made us who we are. And when I look at the amazing people who shared their stories with this project, I want you to know that's where this started. Oh. And to that end, you know, sorry, <laughs> Jimmy's legacy. Jimmy's legacy and your families and all those people who came into contact with the ecosystem here, you know, what you've given before, well, it'll continue. It's going to continue to give back to the game, and I want to make sure that I say thank you. Oh, well. Uh, on his, on, I'll speak with Jimmy, and he'd say you're more than welcome. <laughs> he would be... Yeah. 
honored to know that um, he made he made a difference. Uh, and so I do want to take this a little bit to I want to talk about um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to center this conversation in part because you know we've just talked about this is our community and this is our soccer community and we're learning more and more about it. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to to learn more and that it affects those in our community. Uh, you know, uh, we're just going. It's just going to. There's going to be more information about it and it's going to affect more people we know and love. When I think about Jimmy's legacy as well, I want to talk about the continued selflessness and giving back to the game uh, mm-hmm. through continued research. Yeah. Um, that will help form, former, current, and future athletes. And three years after Jimmy passed, Dr. Ann McKee of Boston University released a study that confirmed Jimmy and other NSL players uh, that they studied had advanced CTE. And I'm going to link to the Concussion Legacy Foundation helpline when I post this podcast, yeah. as well as um, how people can join the Concussion Legacy Foundation Research Registry. And also, there's something people can do now, which is participate in the Head Impact Trauma Surveillance Study, which I'm also going to link to um, when I post this podcast. But I want to give you this space to share anything you'd like for players and families in the sport. Gosh. <laughs> Heavy question. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, yeah. It's... Um, it's hard to talk about this because um, it robbed him of 12 years of his life and um, it basically killed him. So, uh, But um, I have to say that um, I think for me it's about education. I still love, love um, the game of soccer, football. I love to watch it. I love to watch it, you know, the Timbers play and I and I love to watch um the Premier League on television and you know, we're actually going back to um Fulham in um, May, as many of the families can go will go. Um and they're going to honor Jimmy there and it's you know, it's like the Ring of Honor, but it's called Forever Fulham. Mm-hmm. And so even though it was a, an incredibly Painful time. Sorry. No. I do think it's important that um, there is more education out there. And I think above anything else, this is what really um, frustrates me as an individual. Um, I don't know how many people have watched the movie called Concussion, Will Smith. And it was about um, how Dr. Manu had... um, discovered and named um, the disease we now know as CTE. Um, But for anybody who's got um, anybody involved in any kind of contact sport, not just soccer, um, they really should watch that movie. Um, And it really explains a lot about the human brain and the the head and what we should and shouldn't be doing with our heads. you know, and I think that informed consent is one thing. Um, people blindly getting into situations, and it's not, not till many, many, many years later that they get into trouble because they may end up with this disease, and that the information was out there in the first place, and maybe they would have made a different choice. Because, you know, our kids that play the game. You know, out of all those children, the millions and millions that play in, 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 in 
billions or so in the world. And how many of them are actually going to be professional football players or soccer players? 1% maybe? So for the rest of them, they have to have a brain that's going to last them and help them to do a different type of job or whatever. And so if there is a situation where, you know, somebody knows all the facts about CTE, and I know there are those out there that will say um, you can't take heading out of the game. It'll destroy the game. You know, have they ever even tried? Have we ever seen any leagues? I mean, I know the kids below 12 years old are not heading the ball right now, but, you know, those that are older, maybe a U14, that we set up a league that is there's no heading involved. And let's have a look and see what it looks like. So that, you know, maybe down in, in, in the future, the game will all be about just foot skills and, and, and not, you know, making that contact with your head. Um, there are also those that will say, you know, not all players that played um, got CTE, but not all smokers get lung cancer either. So it, it, it is a Russian roulette that you play with your brain. And nobody should have to go through what he went through. No one. So I would, uh, yeah, I would just say that, you know, guess you, you know, the clubs need to educate um, the players. Yeah. The professional clubs need to let their players know, um, you know, what's really involved and the risks they're taking. It's not just in football. I mean, you know, there are other sports. There's, there's rugby. There's, um, there's, you know, hockey. There's, you could, you know, hit your head going down the snow skiing. You know, there's, there's lots of ways you can damage your brain. But this, um, what's really unfortunate is that um, the powers that be were warned about this. And urologists, as far back as like '56 in England. Wow. Uh, and, you know, they just chose to ignore it because, let's face it, Billy, um, the sport at a professional level globally is a multi-multi-billion dollar industry. And it's unfortunate that, you know, money is going to always take first place, not always safety. So I think we just need to really, really, truly understand um the impact that connection of your head with a ball. Um, granted, it's not those um, balls that we played with initially in England that had this ladder inside them and they were better on the outside and when they got wet, they were like cement. And, you know, mm-hmm. I talk to you about that. Um, but it is, if you talk to um, Dr. McGee, it doesn't matter. It's the impact of your head hitting another object. Is and it's that repetitive hitting of the head against objects. Um, and I, I'd like to take this opportunity from. I don't know whether you're aware of this or not, but I guess um, when I spoke to my contact, my it's the family liaison, um, she shared with me that um, before um, U.S. Soccer had their um, concussion summit. I'm going back probably, I'd have to be, have this verified, but it's probably nine months before or maybe even a year before they had the summit this year. They contacted um, some of the team 
and asked them if they would be willing to speak at the summit in 2023. And of course, they agreed. And then as the months rolled on, um, there was no further contact from U.S. soccer. And I guess Dr. McGee's team reached out to U.S. soccer and basically were ghosted by them. And ultimately, um, there was other neurologists who were brought in, and I, I can't speak to who they were and what their credentials are, but according to the Concussion Foundation was, that their narrative was slightly different than the one they would have had had Dr. McGee's team been speaking. So that frustrates me because that's, you know, putting the problem under the mat and not looking at it head on, if you will. So, yeah, yeah, that's really all I have to say about it. But I, you know, but I will close in saying that even though, as I said, it robbed Jimmy of so many years, if if he'd known, I, I feel very, very confident that he wouldn't have made any other choice than to play. I will say that. I, I, I know that of him, that uh, his love for the game was, was amazing. And uh, so, yeah, he definitely would have played. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you, Nolene, for taking the time to share your story and Jimmy's story and your family's story. I know when I walk into Providence Park and I see Jimmy's name in the Ring of Honor and I think about what he built, what I was able to participate in by being at this place at that specific time that he and you and so many others were giving back to the game, I feel a great sense of pride and a great sense of thanks. And we're nearing 50 years of professional soccer here in Portland. And with all that brings in a community, I hope when the Timbers hit 50 in 2025 and 120-75, not just the club, but people celebrating know what it means to see, uh, see the name Jimmy Conway up there. Well, I hope so. Um, you know, as a family, we're very, very proud of that. So, um, yeah. I think, is there anything we've, I mean, I'm sure there's stuff we've missed. There always is. Um, <laughs> but is there anything else you want to you wanna say as we end um, before we do? Well, I just like, um, you know, we talked about Paul. We talked about um, Jimmy, obviously. Um, you know, Laura and Mark both played as well. And Mark was... Um, he would have been a really, really good player. I think he had a. He ended up with a very. He was a left, natural left-footed player, and uh, you know Jimmy was never much about giving accolades to his kids. You know, he <laughs> if they were playing, he was teach, he'd always taught them how to play chess and, and and basketball and golf and all the different sports. And but he would never let them win from their youngest days. He always said, "You've got to earn it." <laughs> And, uh, and he didn't, you know, he didn't hand out compliments either to his kids in terms of how they did or how they didn't do. But I remember we were up in Washington and Mark was playing and um, he uh, and Jimmy happened to be his coach, which was very, very rare. And I remember standing beside him and Mark was playing really, really well. And he'll say, he just said, he'll do me. You know, in other words, <laughs> he's having a great game. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, um, I'm always surprised at the number of sons I, I actually um, had because every recruit Jimmy brought home, he'd pick up at the airport, he'd stop at our house, 
He'd make them tea, which the kids probably had never drank in their life. He'd make them a sandwich. And he wouldn't let me make the sandwich. Um, and he always called them son. So <laughs> that's how he refers to them all. So, um, that's, uh, And then, you know, it said Laura played as well. She played at uh, Oregon State. And um, she was a good player too. So, yeah. Well, Noeen, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate everything you've done, taking the time and, and sharing it's with us. Yes, it was a pleasure, Billy. Really. It was a pleasure. Thank you. you ain't got to be two hundred pounds or a giant at seven three to play this game called soccer, which is growing rapidly. You can hear it on the radio, you will see it on TV. But when the Portland boys appear, you will hear them sing with glee. Green is the colour, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and we're in the glory. So let's be all of the boys, let's cheer for the Portland